Let's uh, pray before we read God's Word. Lord, thank you for the people who are gathered here today. Lord, I pray that you would give us all open hearts, listening ears, and attention spans that exceed uh, that which we might have during the normal course of the week to focus on your word, Lord, uh, and a willingness to submit and seek your heart, Lord, and that we would all desire for ourselves to uh, obey and honor you, Lord, and that we would not uh, be people of rules and legalism, Lord, but a people who truly love their God. Let's uh, read today from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Good morning. If a list was ever compiled of Bible passages to avoid in order to stay out of trouble, this one would be in the top five, uh, along with every other passage that has anything to say about distinctions between the role of women and the role of men in the church. Um, but, you know, the thing about preaching through whole books is that you get to go where angels fear to tread. Uh, here, all right. There is zero possibility that uh, everyone in this room is going to enthusiastically agree with me uh, by the time we're done this morning. Uh, that's perfectly fine. You should already be in the habit of testing every word that comes out of my mouth or anyone else's mouth against the authority of the Word of God. Um, what you're going to hear this morning is one man's understanding of a passage that many godly men and women have wrestled with since the earliest days of the Church of Jesus Christ. I will tell you right up front that my and my wife's personal position on the matter of head covering goes further than what the elders as a group 
believe should be required of the body. For reasons that I hope will become apparent by the end of this message, I have no problem with that disparity. And neither should you. Uh, the last thing that I want is to be the catalyst for any kind of division in the flock of God over this issue. Because this issue is not part of the kernel of what unites us. Uh, it's not part of the gospel. Okay? I believe with all my heart that at the very top of God's list of priorities for us as his children is that we are diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that means we work hard at it. And that means it's hard work. Okay? But I also have to say that you're going to get from me what I see in the Word, how I see it, okay? And I have to say that the passages of God's Word that give us the most heartburn tend to be passages that demand our diligent, prayerful, thoughtful, and humble attention, whether we like it or not. Embracing authority, especially when it is inconvenient to do so, doesn't come easily for sinners <laughs> unless it's our own authority that we're talking about, right? And we must be exceedingly careful about relegating a command that we find in God's Word to that special kind of oblivion that we call culture-bound. I believe that Paul goes out of his way in this passage to make sure we do not consign this command to that category. Paul presents his instruction to us in this passage in four parts. The principle, the practice, the case, and the scope. First, the principle. In verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul commends the Corinthian saints for holding firmly to the teachings that he had delivered to them. But we already know that they didn't bat a thousand, right? We've seen lots of rebukes already in this book. Paul opens verse 3 with the words, but I want you to understand that. He's saying, you've, you've done well, you Corinthian saints, by embracing many of the things that I've, that I've taught you. But there's a matter that you have failed to understand and upon which you have failed to act rightly. In the next verse, verse 3, Paul very concisely lays out the principle that will be his focus for the rest of this passage. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And whenever Paul refers to God and Christ as distinct persons, he is talking about the first and second persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, for instance, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Uh, my brother this morning mentioned John uh, 8, 58, when Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. That's the name, by the way, that God gave to himself in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, who am I to say sent me to Pharaoh? God said, I am that I am. When Jesus uttered those words in reference to himself, he was declaring to be Yahweh. He was declaring to be the Most High God. Okay. So when Paul speaks of God and Christ, he's not saying Christ is not God. He's talking about God the Father and God the Son. 
The Apostle Paul makes that clear himself. Later in Colossians, in chapter 2, he says that in the Son, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All right, during Christ's first advent on earth, God the Son lived as mortal man in humble, sinless submission to God the Father to the point of death on a cross. His perfect submission, Christ's perfect submission, is the template for the submission that God requires of us. At his ascension, Jesus returned forever to his rightful place at the right hand of his Father with absolute authority and exaltation, co-equal to the Father and the Spirit. All right, the word head, the word head as Paul uses it three times here in 1 Corinthians 11.3, refers to authority. God the Father is head over Christ, who is God the Son. Christ is head over every man. And the man is head over a woman. The God-ordained hierarchy of headship and submission is the principle that, that drives everything else that Paul says in these 16 verses. And I believe Paul's being very careful with his choice of words here. He says, Christ has authority over every man the man has authority over a woman. He does not say every man has authority over every woman. Stay with me. <laughs> the God-derived authority that men have over women is limited to certain relationships within the community of God's people, not to all relationships. A father has God-ordained authority over his unmarried daughter. A husband has God-ordained authority over his wife within the context of their marriage, but he does not have that same authority over another man's wife. I should point out here that the words translated man and woman are also the primary Greek words that are translated husband and wife. The context determines which applies. In this passage, the distinction in authority that Paul is pointing out between men and women applies in marriage, but it goes well beyond the context of individual households and marriages. In other words, God's hierarchy of authority in his spiritual household is not merely God the Father, then Christ, then the husband, then the wife. It is God the Father, then Christ, then man, than woman. That will become clearer as we proceed. So again, stick with me. First, the principle in verse 3, and then in verses 4 through 6, the practice. Paul proceeds, starting in verse 4, to lay out the practice that he's requiring of believers on God's behalf in light of the principle that he has just presented. And please hear me. The point of the practice is to make every believer mindful of the principle by means of a God-ordained symbol. I'll say that again. The point of the practice that Paul commands here is to make every believer mindful of the principle by means of a God-ordained symbol. The principle is God the Father, God the Son, man, woman. That's God's hierarchy of authority. That's the principle. Now, 
In verses 4 through 6, Paul says, Every man, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Verse 5, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then let her cover her head. It's pretty strong wording. And notice how much of it is devoted to what the woman does relative to what is devoted to what the man does. Now note that Paul applies the principle from verse 3 to every man in verse 4 and to every woman in verses 5 and 6. In each of those verses, he identifies a violation of God's design for headship, for authority, that he just presented in verse 3. A man violates that God-ordained hierarchy of authority if he covers his head while he is praying or prophesying. A woman violates that same divine design for authority if she does not cover her head while she is praying or prophesying. My brother Kerry jokingly said at one point, I, when the praying and prophesying starts, I take my cap off and give it to, to my wife. <laughs> the head that gets disgraced in either of those violations is not merely the person's own physical head, but the next person up in God's hierarchy of authority. So when the man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he disgraces his own, his own head and he disgraces Christ. Now that's worth thinking about. When the woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she disgraces her own head and she disgraces any man whom God has appointed as her head. The connection between the symbol and the substance, and you can hear me use those two words a lot, the connection between the symbol and the substance, that is between the picture and the reality to which the picture points, is actually very straightforward here. An uncovered head pictures and acknowledges direct submission to the authority of Christ. A covered head pictures and acknowledges submission to the authority of Christ through submission to an intermediate authority. Okay. Paul puts this indirect submission in very, very straightforward terms in Ephesians 5.22 when he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. He's saying that the, wife, the wife's willing submission to her husband is her submission to Christ. It's not one or the other. It's submission to Christ through the act of submitting to her husband. Does that make sense? The picture is pretty simple. The picture is pretty straightforward. It shouldn't be a difficult concept for us, the idea of an intermediate authority. Um, it's exceedingly common in the workplace for an employee to answer to the authority of the CEO or owner of the company through someone who is in middle management, right? Through the authority of the employee's direct supervisor. There may be quite a few people in that chain in large companies. 
Now I'll say again that the practice that Paul exhorts in this passage applies not only to husbands and wives within each married household, but also to men and women in the larger context of the, of the spiritual household of God, the church. We know from other passages that within that spiritual household, women, whether they are married or unmarried, are not permitted to hold positions of authority over men or to teach men. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul goes back to creation to support his assertion, which, by the way, Jesus does in Matthew 18 when he's talking to the Pharisees about divorce. The fact that the prohibition against a woman holding authority over a man applies beyond the context of marriage is also clear from Paul's instructions concerning elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. In both of those passages, the qualifications for elder or deacon are addressed only to men. And in both passages, Paul says plainly that the one who serves as an elder must be, quote, a one-woman man. That's literal translation of the Greek. A one-woman man. In 1 Timothy 3, he extends that very same requirement to deacons. And while this may come as unwelcome news to the insane culture of 21st century America, you cannot be a one-woman man if you're a woman. Before we move from the practice that Paul commands here to the case that he presents to defend that command, I want to make a reasonable effort to clarify what the practice actually is. I believe that when Paul speaks here in chapter 11 of a man or a woman praying or prophesying, he is referring to every context in which those actions are appropriate. Before I go further, let me repeat that. I believe when Paul speaks here of a man or a woman praying or prophesying, he is referring to every context in which those actions are appropriate. But there is one context in which it is not appropriate for a woman to pray out loud or to prophesy, which is always out loud, and that is in the formal meeting of the church that we do on Sundays. I believe that whenever a woman is praying, either silently or out loud, it is an appropriate and desirable reminder to her and acknowledgement to God of his perfect design for headship for her to cover her head. Personally, I believe it's more than appropriate and desirable. I believe it is commanded. What she is to cover her head with or how much of her head is to be covered are not spelled out in this passage or in any other passage. And because the covering is a symbol and not the substance, I don't believe that the form that the symbol takes matters very much to God. I, I think it's, it's supposed to be visible in order to be a reminder. But I, I don't think that we need to agonize over what specifically, what form specifically that takes. Likewise, whenever a man is praying 
whether silently or out loud, he is to acknowledge and be reminded of God's perfect design for headship and submission in God's spiritual household by removing any covering that he might have on his head. I love it at youth camp when we've got all the kids standing in the line with all the counselors and they crank up the, the famous CBC bullhorn to pray for the meal and all the guys pull their caps off. We probably need to talk about why every now and then, but that's, that's what happens. <laughs> all right. What about this matter of prophesying? There is an endless debate over the meanings of the word prophecy and prophesy in the Bible, in both Testaments. <laughs> I believe that Paul tells us what we need to know about what he means by those words throughout chapters 11 through 14 if we just look at chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 4, if you've got your Bibles. Paul says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies or builds up the church. Now, while I believe that that chapter, chapter 14, definitely focuses, focuses on what goes on in the formal meeting of the church, I believe that the definition of prophecy that Paul presents there applies in many contexts in the life of the body of Christ, in our dealings with our fellow believers. Prophecy, as Paul presents it in this letter, is the act of one believer speaking to other believers for edification, exhortation, and consolation. And there's only one authoritative source for those things. Edification, exhortation, and consolation, and that's the Word of God. Read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. What, what equips us to bring any authoritative decree or declaration to another person? Well, it's the Word of God. That's it. Okay. Since the Word of God is the authoritative basis for these things, I take the prophecy that Paul is talking about here to apply to the foretelling or proclamation of God's Word for the purpose of building up believers. Fellow believers. Now that puts prophecy in the same basket as preaching and teaching, which actually strikes me as perfectly consistent with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Just, I'm not going to get into that passage, but go look at it. Look at the four gifts that are, that are used to equip the body, that God gives in order to equip the body. All right. Based on chapter 14, prophecy, 1 Corinthians, prophesying is certainly to take place in the formal meeting of the church. But I find no reason at all to assume from that or any other passage that, that prophesying, as Paul speaks of it, is limited to the formal meeting. Any more than prayer is limited to the formal meeting. For that reason, I believe that the assertion by some that chapter 11 allows a woman to speak out loud in the formal meeting of the church as long as she is praying or prophesying is a baseless assertion. I don't think it follows from anything. Chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, two of the most popular verses in the Bible. No, two of the most scorned and despised verses in the Bible. 
Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves, just as the law also says it. Now, real quick, that wording is significant. Not let them be subjected. Let them subject themselves. It's supposed to be willing. It's it's supposed to be the woman's act to subject and submit herself to this requirement. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands or men at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. I've read that passage so many times and I've looked at the entire context of it and I I can't find any exceptions or adjustments. The late Vance Havner, delightful guy, if any of you had the opportunity to hear him, he had his own take on one of the most foundational principles of biblical interpretation. He said, if the plain sense makes good sense, any other sense is nonsense. (laughs) And the plain sense of those verses to me is not hard to come by. Let me read them again. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them, be, let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their men at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Three times in those two verses, Paul says a woman is not permitted to speak in the gathering of the church, which is the, absolutely the focus of chapter 14. He doesn't present exceptions or adjustments to that straightforward and repeated declaration. And beloved, I do not believe we should either. On the other hand, here in chapter 11, Paul does not explicitly limit the context of his instructions to what goes on in the formal meeting of the church. In chapter 11, he does not explicitly refer to this meeting until verses 17 and 18 which introduce his strong rebuke of the Corinthians related to their demeaning of the Lord's table when they gather together. That's when he starts talking about what happens in the gathering of the church, and he stays on that track through chapter 14. All right, the short form of all that I've just said is this. I believe Paul's exhortation to women to cover their heads and to men to uncover their heads when one of them prays or prophesies applies to every biblically acceptable context in which those activities are practiced. I believe this instruction applies in the prayer closet, when praying silently or out loud. I believe it applies in small group meetings, when praying silently or out loud, or when presenting exhortation, encouragement, or consolation from the Word. And I believe it applies in any other gathering in which it is acceptable for a believer to pray prophesy, as Paul has defined prophesying. For a woman, the formal gathering of the church, which for us is our Sunday morning worship and teaching, is not an acceptable context for her to speak out loud. So it is not a context in which she may pray out loud or present encouragement, exhortation, or consolation from God's word to the gathered body of believers. But it is absolutely a context in which she may pray silently, including participating silently along with other men in the prayers that are spoken out loud by whoever is standing up here at the mic. When doing so, 
told you I'm going to preach it as I see it. When doing so, I believe head covering for the woman and head uncovering for the man both apply. I'll say again, I do not believe that this matter is central to the Christian faith. I do not believe agreement on this matter should be elevated to a level of test for fellowship. But I do believe that none of us should take Paul's instruction here lightly. The principle, the practice, the case in verses 7 through 15. In those verses, Paul presents his case in defense of the practice that he's just exhorted believers to observe. He presents a series of evidences from God's specific revelation in Scripture and from God's general revelation in nature to support his exhortation regarding the practice of head covering. His first exhibit, exhibit A in his case in verses 7 through 10, is God's creation which reveals God's original and unchangeable design for male and female. This aspect of God's created order to which he appeals here in verse 7 is image and glory, with an emphasis on glory. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 tells us that God made mankind in his image and that that image was expressed in two genders, male and female, not 46 genders, two. But Paul points out that a man bears the glory of God and a woman bears the glory of man. And then he supports that assertion in verses 8 and 9. He says in verse 8, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Eve, you know the story, Eve was created by God from a rib that he removed from Adam after putting Adam into a divine general anesthesia. That established a hierarchy of physical origin that Paul presents in support of the hierarchy of authority that he's already declared. After appealing to physical origin, he then also, from creation, appeals to the purpose of God in his creation of man and woman. He says in verse 9, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. This is straightforward as well from Genesis 2. After God created Adam and placed him in the garden as his agent and image bearer on the earth, the one thing in all of God's creation that God said was not good was that the man did not have a helper who corresponded to him. Man had God, and by the way, God identifies himself as a helper of man in the Psalms, so being a helper is, is not that doesn't denigrate the person. But he didn't have a helper corresponding to him. By the way, the greatest helper corresponding to man is Jesus. But God created the helper for, for Adam out of Adam's rib, and he named her woman. God created the woman for the man, not vice versa. In verse 10, Paul says, therefore the woman ought to have Authority, and we, we take this to be the symbol of authority that he's been talking about all along, on her head because of the angels. And I love that verse. <laughs> because of the angels. Paul talked about the angels in, in terms of, of God's hierarchy of authority already. In 1 Corinthians 6, when he rebuked the Corinthian saints for suing each other in the world's courts, he said to them, if the world is judged by you, 
Are you not competent to constitute the smallest courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And then he says, how much more the matters of this life? Now, when I put that passage together with verse 10 of this passage, <laughs> I surmise that the angels who will one day be judged by redeemed saints, both male and female, will look upon the symbol of a woman's head covering now and they will behold a picture of what their own willing and humble submission to the God-ordained authority of redeemed men and women over them is like. A woman who displays the symbol of her willing submission to God's design for authority, joyfully rather than begrudgingly, that woman blesses not only herself and the people of God, but the angels who attend to the people of God. In verses 11 and 12, Paul presents a critically important clarification. I call this the other side of origin. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Now it should be noted that verse 12 makes absolutely no sense if we translate the word for woman as wife and the word for man as husband. That would mean that the husband has his birth from the wife. In these two verses, Paul points out that even though the first woman was created from or out of man, it's also true that every man since Adam has his birth through the woman. Paul's declaring, he's declaring the playing field to be level when it comes to the value of a man and a woman in the sight of God. Headship has no relationship to worth. It has no relationship to value in the sight of God. In Galatians 3, verses 27 to 28, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, I could spend a lot of time here developing how the Bible dramatically elevated the stature of women in stark contrast with the cultures in which the people of God found themselves when these documents were written. But at this point, I'll simply say that Paul is making it clear that God's hierarchy of headship, of authority in his spiritual household does not put women in a place of inferior value when compared with men. I could spend a lot of time on that, and I wish I had it, but all right, Paul's final exhibit in his case to defend his instruction to the people of God regarding head covering is an appeal to general revelation in nature. He says, judge for yourselves, verse 13, is it proper for a woman to pray with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Long hair on a man was then 
and in some cases is now a hindrance to some certain kinds of physically demanding work and work with machinery, certain kinds of machinery. It's also a hindrance to doing battle. I find it very telling that in today's US military branches that have gone to such great lengths to declare men and women equal as warriors, one of the first thing that happens to every young man when he gets to boot camp involves the merciless removal of all or most of his hair. Not so for women. It's not so surprising in our modern culture, even in our modern cultural context, for Paul to say that nature itself teaches that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But he says long hair on a woman is not dishonorable, but honorable. Indeed, there's a reasonable, reasonable case to be made from verse 15 that long hair on a woman fulfills the requirement of a head covering. Verse 15 says, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And the word for, it, it often means in place of or instead of. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that it would be wrong for a woman with long hair to put on a head covering when praying or speaking encouragement, exhortation, and consolation on the authority of God's word inappropriate context. Hear me when I say this, please. The believer who out of love for God delights in doing things that honor God does not seek to identify a minimum standard of compliance when he or she has opportunity to do something that God says honors him. The believer does not does not say in his or her heart, I have to do this, so how can I keep the imposition to a minimum? Instead, he or she says, I get to do this for my Savior, for my Master, for the lover of my soul, <laughs> so how far can I go to display my delight in doing it? The last part of Paul's, Paul's presentation here, Paul's declaration about this practice is the scope. How far does this apply? Paul concludes his exhortation regarding head covering in verse 16 by saying, but if one is inclined to be contentious, which apparently was happening, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. First thing to notice in that, in that verse is that this instruction applies in the churches of God, that is within the community of the saints, not in other contexts, such as the believer's relationships in the workplace or in cultural institutions. There is no basis here for saying that a believing man may not work under the authority of a woman in the workplace or that a believing woman may not serve in a supervisory role over men in the workplace. This is about life in the body of Christ. And again, it is not limited to practice only in the formal meeting of the church. In chapter 7, right after instruct, instructing believing spouses to remain and be faithful in their marriages, even if they're married to an unbeliever, Paul says in 7.17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one and as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. That instruction, like this one, 
explicitly applies in all the churches, but that one is not about what happens in the formal meeting of the church, right? It's about what happens in marriages. In chapter 14, I've already seen it once, but a passage that's clearly is, that clearly is about the formal meeting of the church, after giving instruction about orderly handling of words of prophecy in that context, in the meeting of the church, Paul adds in verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of God, of churches of the saints. Now, interestingly, the very next thing he says in that passage is verse 34 and 35 that we saw earlier about women being silent. I don't think that's a coincidence. Right after he says, in all the churches of the saints. Two verses later, in chapter 14, 37, he says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Beloved, when Paul goes out of his way to say that an exhortation or command he has just presented, like the one in chapter 11, is not limited to one local church in one specific culture and cultural context in one age of mankind, but applies instead in all the churches of the saints, I think we need to take that seriously. Let me wrap this up. The policy of the CBC elders on the matter of head covering, and this is a summary, not a quote, it's my summary, is that the specific practice of each woman and of each family should be a matter of one's own conscience before God after careful and prayerful examination of the relevant passages of Scripture. It is not my purpose in this message to further limit or in any way change that policy. But beloved, it is my purpose to exhort you to, to take the last part of that very seriously. Your approach to this command from Paul must be the result of careful and prayerful examination of the Word of God and what God has to say on the matter. If your personal response to this passage is that you shouldn't have to really give any consideration to a practice that would be so easily seen as weird by someone that you invited to church or that visited your ministry group, then, then perhaps you need to give this some more prayer and thought. What someone else considers weird won't suffice as your answer to God for what you do with this instruction. And whatever your brothers and sisters in Christ choose to do with this will also not suffice as your answer to God for what you do with this instruction. In this passage, God has handed us a command through his faithful apostle, and Paul has gone out of his way to make sure that we understand it's a command to all the churches. As for what you determine to do about it specifically, the details matter far less than the heart. And that's, and bear with me a little bit longer here, that's because symbol is not equal to substance. Symbol is not equal to substance. The symbols or reminders that God gives to his people, and there are many in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament, only have value. They only have value because they make God's people mindful of something far greater than the symbols themselves. Every symbol ordained by God under the Old Covenant, every symbol ordained by God under the New Covenant was graciously given 
to stir up the minds and hearts of his people to remember and acknowledge a critically important truth about him and about our relationship with him. When God ordains a symbol to remind us of a spiritual reality, the heart of the matter is the hearts of his people. God made it clear way back in Deuteronomy 10 that the circumcision that matters to him is not the circumcision of the flesh performed by human hands, but the circumcision of the heart that the circumcision of the flesh pictures. Just as Paul declared emphatically in Romans 2 and Colossians 2. Baptism. God commands the practice of physical baptism as an outward visible symbol and memorial of the true baptism that God himself has accomplished. God says himself has accomplished not by water, not by men, but only by the one whom John the Baptist acknowledged, it was told by God, would baptize not in water, but in the Spirit. The one who would baptize in the Spirit. It's the Spirit baptism that the earthly baptism pictures. That Spirit baptism unites and identifies every believer with Jesus. Without the reality, the picture is pointless. And the reality exists with or without the picture. The symbol never accomplishes the symbol never accomplishes the substance. The symbol finds its usefulness and its purpose in the substance to which it points. Now, I've said this before, you guys bear with me for a minute. I've never been a big fan of reducing the elements of the Lord's table to a thimble full of juice and a piece of bread that wouldn't register on a postal scale. <laughs> but I am perfectly willing to receive the modest elements that were determined long before I was an elder by the leaders of this church and to do so every time that we come together as a body, and to delight in the beautiful and miraculous reality that they represent. My delight is in the substance, not the symbol that points to the substance. I could make the same essential point about the offering, but I'm out of time. I say all of that to drive this point home. Whatever specific form your personal observance takes of this God-ordained picture, of God's design for headship and submission in his spiritual household, whatever form it takes is of far less importance than that you are made mindful of that design and that you joyfully and prayerfully acknowledge and embrace that design. But I'm compelled to add this. To say that the symbol does not accomplish the substance is not the same thing as saying that the symbol is dispensable or even required. Before you dismiss the symbol that God commanded of all the churches through Paul to make us mindful of his design for headship and submission in his spiritual household, please give prayerful consideration to whether you need or don't need the reminder that that symbol does accomplish. Most of us here would never say that we don't need the reminder of our Lord's atoning death and imminent return that is set before us in the Lord's table every time we gather together as a body. The symbol doesn't accomplish the substance, but the symbol is not dispensable. The Lord's table reminds us, it reminds us in tangible, tasteable terms of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place. 
and of His imminent return to claim us as His bride forever. Whatever you do or don't do with your physical head when you pray or when you exhort and encourage others from God's Word should be done with humility before God and with prayerful, thoughtful acknowledgement of His design for headship in His spiritual household. That much is not optional. Dear Father, we acknowledge to You that we don't have to like or even entirely understand Your reasons for the things that You call us to do as Your people. We confess that what we must do is humbly embrace Your Word, knowing that everything that You do in fact require of us is good. Father, use all that we do to display the glory of Your character, Your ways, and Your works to one another and to the world that is watching us. We ask this in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen.